Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. If you're an avid viewer of GB News, and particularly this show, you'll know that by now I have three people normally joining me, keeping me company, but no, tonight we have two people. Not because someone's been stuck somewhere. Can't afford the third, is that David Starkey jumping in on my left there. Hush now, I'd not even, inv- I'd not even introduced you. <sighs> what You're am I going to? David. That's what am I going to do with these two? Yeah, that's a good point, Laurie. Actually, reduce his fee by half and afford a third. Right. Uh, shall I take control of my own show now? Then you and introduce my panel, ladies and gentlemen. As I was saying, I don't have three; I have two. One of them, David Starkey, historian. Uh, welcome to you, and also Laurie. I shall behave better, Michelle. Yes, <laughs> he's so close. I can give him a slap. Are we allowed to do that in this day and age? Well, <laughs> I'll practice. I'll practice in the brick so that I will. Uh, An environmental policy researcher, Laurie Lebon. So yes, this is a deliberate plan, everyone, to try two panelists. Uh, for the rest of this week. We've been doing it since Monday. We just want to see, you know, we're, we're trying to play with things, see what works best. Is it better to have two strong voices, three strong voices? And as I always say, it's not just about us, it's about you as well. What are your thoughts? Do you prefer two panellists? Do you want three? Uh, get in touch with me. Tell me not just that, but also your views on the topics that we will be discussing tonight. We'll be talking about the leadership competition talking about foreign aid, uh, particularly when it comes to transparency of what we're doing with our money, where we're spending it and how effective it is. Also want to talk to you about the strikes. Um, Another one announced today. Is it right then that agency workers are allowed to cross picket lines and basically keep companies, services, industries, whatever you want to call it, moving? Want to talk to you about that one as well. You can get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk is the email. Or you can tweet me at gbnews or at michellejubes. One of the things that I'm really interested in uh, as well tonight, because, you know, you've just heard in the news that we have gone down from eight to six in the leadership competition. Rishi Sunak is, of course, the top person at the moment. But I thought it was quite interesting, um, a poll uh, that was out today that actually said that Penny, uh, Penny Morden, who's currently second place when it comes to this kind of, um, you know, the thing that we're in now, the poll was actually saying that when you look at Tory members, Penny would be Rishi. And the feeling that I'm getting through a lot of my emails already tonight is that you uh, wouldn't back Rishi Sunak if you were a Tory member. So I'm asking you, are you a Tory member? Because it's really fascinating if you're not, but uh, it's quite crucial if you are. If you are a Tory member and you're going to get the option, who would you choose? Um, JW said, for me, it's less about policies and more about the person. I wouldn't vote Tory if Sunak was the PM. You're talking there, I guess, about the next general election that we're going to be having. And I did just flash up for you then the six uh, on the screen that got through, but I was actually talking through it. So I do apologise if you were wondering who they are. I might be able to get that back up for you. Uh, But just a quick reminder, the two that got, um, I want to say booted out, but it's not the X Factor, is it? Jeremy Hunt and Adim Zahawi are the ones that went today. So that leaves us with Sunak, Penny Morden, uh, Tom Tugendhat, Liz Truss, Suella Braveman and Kemi Badenoch. Now, where shall I start? I might start with you, Mr Starkey, when you look at that uh, that leaders board there, look at them, beautiful lot. 
Do you have a favourite? Is there anyone in there that's kind of taking your fancy? Yes, very strongly, Kemi Badenoch. I oh, think she seems to me to be the only one who actually is capable of thinking. Right. Uh, she's a completely different sort of voice. And I think we need a different sort of voice. The trouble is, Sunak is brilliantly intelligent, smooth, polished, and all of those things. But he went along with what I think is one of the great catastrophes of our history, which is lockdown. The reason that we are in the mess that we are now is because we grossly overreacted for reasons that are entirely intelligible, because all the media, all the opposition, all the medical profession were all saying lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. Nevertheless, the reason we're in the mess we are now is because we locked down, we put the economy in a deep freeze, and we threw money at people for not working. And we finished up with a level of debt which is comparable to that of the Second World War. So we're really we're in a post-war situation. Mm. We should understand this. This is comparable to 1922 or it's comparable to 1945. And remember what happened in 1945? There is a great lurch to the left because what happens during... I mean, think about what happened during COVID. You develop the state you hugely increase taxation. You increase control of people. What I, I use the phrase, you get a Chinese virus, you finish up with a Chinese society. I want a Tory leader who's confident enough to say, no, that was not the right thing to do. I will do things differently. And the only one showing any sign of that is Kemi. But then where did she vote in terms of things like vaccine passports, in terms of things like, um, you know, the mandatory vaccinations for the NHS and things like that? Because there's a whole plethora of these kind of things that were going through, wasn't there? Um, and it'd be interesting to see. Do you know the answer to that, where she voted? I don't. I, I don't. I mean, in other words, the problem is, of course, in one sense, all of them are involved in it, right? Mm -hmm. All of you know, or, or every member of the government was, and indeed, I think virtually every, with a handful of exceptions, every, every Tory backbencher. But what Kemi is doing, she's showing a quest to think of what might conservatism really mean. This notion that, which Sunak is really purveying, we sort of go back to Thatcher, that it just means sound management of public finance really will not do. If there's a single legacy from Boris. It is the nature of the coalition that backed him, the whole business of the Red Wall in the North you know, um, uh, in the 2019 election. We've got to address those questions, but I think above all, we've got to ask, why did Boris go so badly wrong? Everybody's presenting it. Well, I simply... don't think he did. Well, I think he did. But so let me, you know, um, uh, we'll discuss that. But just can I say why I think he went so badly wrong? If it's, well, actually, no, you can hold your thought about okay. Boris because I want Laurie to come in and tell me about this current batch. Where do you stand? So, uh, Kemi is for David. Yeah. Um, I think the other way around. Oh, yes, you're for Kemi. Well, she might I'm, not, be I'm not standing. She I'm might not be for you Oddly as well. enough, she I'd be, be far better than any of them, but I'm not standing. So, who, who, are, you, um, who are you kind of putting your money on? Well, I think, well, but the first thing to say is that I, I think some of the opposition to Rishi Sunak is because a lot of the cabinet um, have been tarred with the same brush as Boris Johnson. I think when you look at some of that polling, it, for me, underlines how unpopular some of those uh, cabinet ministers are, how they were involved, not so much in imposing lockdown, but then in 
breaking their own rules. And I think that's a massive thing in voters' minds. I think it's a massive thing in Tory voters' minds. And then I think the general association with some of the... Um, but sorry, who, who broke the rules? The, the people in government, that they broke their who? own rules who? in government. Who? Sorry, but who... Which well, Rishi got an FPN, didn't he? He, yeah, he, he got one for turning up early for a meeting. And he, he, in fact, very nearly resigned on that. He was so shocked. Not a single other politician was involved in anything that happened in Downing Street. Our great problem is that we think Partygate was about politicians. It wasn't. Partygate was about civil servants and other members of the Downing Street staff. I mean, the, the really shocking thing about Partygate, and the press refused to understand it. Do you know who was the person who, the famous incident, you actually bring in a karaoke machine? Who was it? I love that you were, I love you say it was famous. I did everything possible, by the way, David, to avoid making any of this famous. I found the whole thing absolutely well, absurd. I okay, but, so, but sorry, let's just, if it, apparently it's registered, it, look, it's, it's, it's registered with Laurie, but let's try to get the facts right. The person who brought in the karaoke machine in the most shocking incident, do you know what she was? She was the head of propriety and ethics. She was the high civil servant actually in charge. She, that was before the pandemic, though. She bought... It was. No, no, that is not true. No, sorry, that is not true. She was cabinet... She was second cabinet secretary, but with responsibility for propriety and ethics. Helen McNamara, please... I do know my facts. I'm very good. But, sorry, this is not... In other words, Partygate is not politicians. It didn't involve any other member of the cabinet. Uh, but I, I did, of course, involve the leader of the opposition. Uh, but, but that's another matter. Uh, you know. So anyway, what was your answer? But that, but that. Which but I think this is a fact. But I think, it, regardless of this, this is a factor in how people will vote in this election, and it, it, both in this leadership election and in the subsequent election. You know, this is this will be a major determining factor, and I think that sits behind one of the reasons why Rishi Sunak has not been seen as preferable. I, I like... Well, he's not been seen as preferable among the members. For some of the voting. But, yeah, so, I mean, just to be absolutely clear, by the way, because the way this works, obviously, this particular round that we're in now, you have to get 30 MPs to vote for you. So I'll just give you a couple of numbers. Sunak got 88. Uh, Penny Mordaunt got 67. That was about two... Uh, I think it was twice as many, by the way, that had come out and said that they were going to vote for her, publicly declared interest. Uh, Trust got 50. Kemi Badenoch got 40. Uh, Tom Tugendhat, 37. Suella Braveman, 32. So that's just to put a bit of uh, context there. So when you say it's not really kind of people are that into him, I think the MPs, a lot of mm -hmm. MPs seem to be, but when you then start cascading down the to the members... The members' today, yeah. Yeah, I think, and that is the challenge that these guys have all got. They've got to appeal to two different types yep. of people, and some of those aspects might have crossover and some of them might... And Kemi, when you say about Kemi, by the way, because I know that a lot of people are looking and saying, you know, the people that voted proactively to restrict us, people, some people anyway, are quite against that. But for me, when I look at that, I do find in things like the vaccine passports, I found those quite ludicrous and not really steeped in much scientific or medical facts or whatever. To me, they seemed quite ludicrous. And as I understand it, she did vote for things like that. She did, as I understand it, and I'm happy to be corrected because you can always find different information on these things. I think she voted as well for mandatory NHS um, vaccinations, something that I personally was very anti. I campaigned against it on this programme. I was very pleased uh, when they dropped that, because I don't think you should mandate anyone to have anything injected into them. Be careful. The whole way in which infectious disease has been eliminated was by mandatory vaccination. I feel very strongly about this. I had polio. 
the thing that stopped successive generations of people having polio was the Salk vaccine. And the only reason there can be any debate about the advisability or indeed the necessity of vaccination with, with COVID is the nature of the vaccine and the nature of the disease. Because the disease changes so rapidly, the effectiveness of the vaccine is very short-lived. So I can see there's an argument there. But remember, the only way that infectious disease has been eliminated is by compulsory vaccination. And one of the things that we're... So this is historically true. But one I think it can be as historically true as it wants. Okay. I'm still deeply so you, opposed you, you, to people well, okay. being told that they have to be injected with something that didn't have long-term safety data. But I'm conscious that we're going off topic, so I'm going mm. to pull it back mm. on topic. And I'll ask you specifically, Laurie, I'll start with you anyway and then branch it out. In terms of um, policies that yep. you think these guys should adopt going forward, things like net zero, your climate is your kind of bag mm. after all. Do you think that all of the candidates should be standing by and kind of championing net zero or is it time to kind of ditch it a little bit? Well, specifically on that, I can understand why then they will be cautious because they're trying to appeal to various parts of the Tory camp. I think Penny Morden and others have come out and said that they are in support of what is a law and we must remember what the point of that law is. It's to stimulate, to push government and to provide a clear signal to businesses so they can invest in reducing our emissions, which above everything to do with the climate is good for us right now because it means we'll become less dependent on expensive fossil fuels like gas. But can I just make a wider point here about policy, which is that there was another, there was some more polling that came out recently which looked at the issues that are most important to Tory members, right? And some of the basket of what we, we traditionally see as, as kind of culture war issues and so on, things like trans rights and, uh, and in some respects, um, racial equality, they were at the very bottom. In fact, those two issues were the bottom two. At the top was cost of living. And I really welcome, David, your comparison here with the end of the Second World War. One way we can interpret that, I believe, is, is as a leftward turn. Another story there is actually the, the huge consensus that had been reached between the parties in the moment of rebuilding, in the moment of winning the peace after winning the conflict and winning the war. And for me here, this is, this is really important, makes a really important connection to the cost of living. The cost of living crisis we see at the moment is driven partly by inflation from abroad, the, the, the cost of, of energy in particular, right? But it's also not just a cost of living, it's an income problem as well. Wages have stagnated in this country now for quite a while. We're not seeing much wage growth, and in some places it's actually going right down. Real wages have been eroded. That, for me, is the, the biggest policy problem facing these leaders as they come in. It's how to create a situation off the back of the damage done by COVID and maybe in some respects by COVID policies and try to reach that, that, rebuild, that, that regeneration moment. The, the winning the post-pandemic world, for me, is the big one. And that fundamentally has to be about re-establishing a link between everyone's hard work and their wages going up. But then I would add a third link just before I refer to David, because a lot of people, you're absolutely right, their cost of living is getting out of control for them. They're not getting the pay rises that they want or need to try and keep up. But then I would say that therefore that links to the net zero. And many people, I know this because I get emails every yeah. night, people will say, and it's for that reason that you highlight that actually now is the time to press pause on net zero because people don't want additional uh, costs, whatever they are, uh, but they don't want additional green subsidies or anything like that added. They want costs going down, not increasing. The, the, the biggest thing that this country can do right now to uh, reduce bills, 
that will also help with net zero is to insulate its old and drafty building stock. We have some of the, the least insulated homes in, in Europe, say, in, in, in some parts of similar economy, you know, in relation to other economies of our, of our type and size. And what that will do is mean that when we hit this winter, we will be more insulate. We won't need to use as much gas. You know, I'm Why not talking is the about... government's responsibility to insulate private homes? The government has always had a role in ensuring that the housing stock in this country is fit for purpose. This goes back hundreds of years to the beginnings of what then became the movement that ended up being council housing. When my dad, right, working class guy, no qualifications, moved to London, the council paid to, without any, just not a subsidy, they paid entirely for the upgrade on the insulation in this house that he was able to buy as well from that background. At a discount, and that, probably. And that is because, yeah, particularly compared exactly. to now. So Sorry, can we just stop? But, and can we then just start thinking? Um, the great problem with what happened in 45 is that it, all the policy decisions that were taken were catastrophic to the British economy. The Corelli-Barnett analysis that the introduction of the welfare state on the, the direct introduction of an unfunded welfare state directly on the back of the vast financial crisis and indebtedness and industrial backwardness caused by the war was catastrophic. And it, settled, it also saddled us with profoundly dysfunctional institutions like the NHS, which were just beginning to wake up. No, please, you had a long stretch. Yeah, go on, let him finish. Let, let me, let, right. So I think the, the Second World War is the catastrophic example. I fear it's very likely to happen. In other words, it will have a, we will have a Starmer government that will make all the same mistakes as Attlee, that will venerate Attlee, that will venerate... Well, you know, this is the great myth of Labour. I think this is exactly what should not happen. The reason that wages have stagnated is, of course, because our productivity remains spectacularly low. We also have a welfare system that means at the moment, when there's a desperate demand for jobs, we have 5.5 million people of working age kept on benefits. This is insane. This what do you is, mean they're kept on benefits? They, they can choose to, they choose to live off benefits. This is wholly destructive. This is primarily the work of Gordon Brown. If you remember, the idea was that we would all decide that we loved the welfare state because somehow everybody would be given a bit of welfare, which is why you make television licenses free, which is why you give very rich pensioners like me whatever number of hundreds of pounds it is to cover fuel bills and all this sort of thing. This all represents a fundamentally wrong approach to policy. Um, and it's a wrong approach to policy which is soaked into the, not simply the British political parties, it's soaked into the administrative elite. There's a vast vested interest in it with the huge NHS and state bureaucracy and so on. We, des we need a rethink. Nobody can imagine that either our finances, our industrial policy, anything is going very well at the moment. We had this gigantic, just one second, we had this gigantic opportunity for a shake-up with Brexit. Brexit demands a rethink. There has been no rethink. In other words, we are now in the worst of all possible worlds. We semi-broke up with the previous pattern of economic management, you know, floods of immigrants. Why, why, why have labour rates stagnated? Primarily because of immigration, a deliberate attempt at keeping wages down. 
No. So then what are you hearing or what do you want to hear from these candidates so I've been far? trying to explain. I want somebody who is capable of rethinking, somebody who is willing to take a risk, somebody who is not soaked in conventional groupthink, somebody not like Rishi Sunak, who is simply visibly in hoc. You know, he's an absolute classic member of this class. You look at his background, you look at the world that he was in before it, you look at his policies. Well, he says he has no working class friends, didn't he? Have you seen that video? He says he don't think any of his friends that he had uh, were working well, what the devil difference point. does that make? Well, I think it makes a big difference, actually. I think that so if wait, you I, want to see, I think it's profoundly patronising. Hang on, you I was born in a, I was born in a council. I was born in a council house. I mean, what the devil difference does it make? I want to know not where people have come come from. I want to know where they're going to. I don't want to know who their father was. I want to know what's in their bloody brains. Well, I actually think it does make a difference. Because if you are somebody who is literally part of the so-called top tier, the so-called mm. elite, mm. and you are someone that will openly admit, I don't have any working class mates, I don't know any working class people, if you're a random average person, whatever, if you're seeking to represent a country, then I do think that will be problematic for you. Because as we've Sorry, seen... Sorry, I, I misheard you. Are you saying that Sunak actually said he didn't have any working yeah. class friends? Yes. Well, does that surprise you? I mean, so come on. I mean, can I? Can I? Are you really as naive as you're pretending no, to I be? I mean, you think. look at this man. He's married to the daughter of a billionaire. He, you know, he is every sort of grand merchant banker, super school Winchester, brilliant performance at Cambridge. Do you think people like that go round to the pub? For God's sake. Well, I think that if you're someone like that and what you want to do, David, I think if you're someone like that no, no, but and I'm you're just, in the world... No, let me answer. Yeah, yeah. If you're someone like that and what you want to do is stay within your trade, then I couldn't care less, quite frankly, who you mix with and who you don't. Hmm. If you want to put yourself forward as wanting to drive a country forward, then I think you need to make it your business, actually, to try and understand the different class types friends, of people within it. How many working-class friends do you think Boris Johnson had? And yet he was able to appeal. You see, appealing and presenting yourself as a political leader isn't just about having a mate. It's about... It's an act. It's a performance. This is you know, why a Churchill is so great. It's why, in his own way, Boris is great and why the man that I think Boris really resembles, Boris thinks he resembles Churchill. Of course, he doesn't. He resembles David Lloyd George. And again, it's this particular kind of command of style, of language. And being a democratic politician, it's a profoundly difficult thing to be. Only a handful of people can actually carry this off. I mean, most of them just sound like automata. Well, there you go. You tell me. Who do you think? And are you, this is what I'm really interested in tonight, are you a Tory party member as well? Because if you are, you will be. It's all well and good uh, people pontificating about this. I'm not a Tory party member, so I don't get a vote. Do you, and how will you use that vote? Uh, Adam says, in for a penny, in for a pound. I'm a member, and it's penny all day long. Have you made up your mind already, or are you waiting to hear... Um, about some of the debates that are going to be happening over the weekend, etc. Or is your mind made? Tell me already. Let me know your thoughts. But I have to say, Penny is coming through quite thick and fast. And the response to Rishi, no, 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 says Susan, in capital letters, absolutely not. Many people saying that, yes, if you get Rishi this time, that's fine, but you don't think he would win the next general election. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome back to Jubes and Kerr. I'm having to shut one of my panel up again. Uh, David Starkey, the historian and the broadcaster, joins me, as does the environmental policy researcher, Laurie Laybon. Uh, I'm trialling for one week currently, two panellists and not three. I want you guys to let me know what you think to that, by the way. Do you prefer uh, three panel members or two? Uh, there's a couple of people written in already, by the way, David, saying that they want you to be the Prime Minister. <laughs> there would be a shake-up, I can oh, tell you. They? I would revive the scaffold. I would do a... I would do... I'm being semi-serious. I think we need the most radical clearing out. The most radical clearing out. There you go. Um, Hmm, there's a lot to clear out, I would suggest. You'd have, your, you'd have your hands full. I don't even think you'd have much time to run the country. You'd be busy. Oh, I'd have a specialist executioner. Clearing. I'm very good at delegation. Yeah. Very good at delegation. You'd have your hands full, that's for sure. <laughs> right, let's move on. Maybe you? more than one execution. A whole team. <laughs> right, rail workers from the RMT averted to call another 24-hour strike on July the 27th. The Train Drivers Union, as left, is meeting tomorrow to decide whether to support the action. Uh, but... Well, you know, we, we've talked about strikes for quite some time now, haven't we? And I know that they do divide opinion. But uh, interestingly, this conversation this time about how effective the strikes would be, because this week MPs have approved what some will say is controversial plans to let agency workers cover for striking staff. I have to say, this is all, all being called the, a scabs charter on social media and places like that. And it makes me wince. It makes me... I don't like it. There's something about that phrase that makes me deeply uncomfortable. But if you've seen that kind of phrase in and around the news, this is what I'm referring to. David Starkey, where do you stand on all this? I agree with you about the scab. I mean, what it's going back to is the days of hardline tr trade unionism on either side of the Second World War and right through to the 1970s. I think the real problem is, of course, who were they striking against? They're striking against you and me. The railways are not profitable companies at all. They're essentially subsidised and they're increasingly being t taken over, in other words, re-nationalised. And this, I think, is the fundamental problem. The trade unionism in the private sector was, if you like, broken by Margaret Thatcher. She left the public sector and public sector trade unionism completely unreformed. And who these people are striking against isn't some you know, hard-nosed, you know, silk-top-hatted, bulging-wallet capitalist. It's you and me. And also, of course, because effectively all of these industries, and I include the NHS with the behaviour of the doctors as well, because they're all monopolies, they are in a position of pretty well absolute power. They can simply turn the railways off. They can turn... The NHS. So you're off. saying they shouldn't be able to strike? No, I am saying that we need to have a, again, we need, not, instead of ranting with slogans, instead of talking about scabs and whatever, we want a serious discussion as to the balance of power within a strike. We want a serious discussion as to how, what the rights of an employee in public sector employment, in, say, an emergency industry, which effectively rail increasingly is, an industry on which the whole country actually depends, should they have simply, effectively, the right to shut it down? Which is, and also to shut it down with effectively no penalty. You see, the, 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 the way in which strike law operates, it really exonerates the striker from what would otherwise be legal penalties. And 
we need a new discussion. We're in new circumstances. And again, all of these things have just been forgotten. They've been shoved under the carpet. We've decided we didn't want to talk about them. It was just too difficult. We need to. Hmm. Parker's just written in and said, these workers who choose to strike for more pay should be told that everyone in the country is struggling to pay their bills, but not uh, choose to strike because they see the difficulties the country has gone through, but they don't want to make it worse for everyone that's struggling. Uh, what they then end their email and saying is that basically this, the strikers are selfish. Laurie, where do you stand? I mean, they're not, they're not striking against us, right? They, they, they're striking against the fact that their wages have stagnated and the fact that in the case of the train companies, they are, however much there is a, 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 a sort of dependent relationship with government, which I think is, is a result of the bad way that they were privatised, semi-privatised back in the day, they are still, well, they're largely public companies from abroad that are in effect extracting money from the UK. Tiny amounts, which is why they're giving them... Sorry, it's why, it's why all the franchises are going to keep failing and keep being sure, given up. Because, because, yeah. because they overbid but, and then they can't actually produce... People, you know, we... I really applaud you for talking about power imbalances because what has happened over the last few decades is there has been a huge erosion of the power of those people in the economy who primarily earn their money from wages, right? And this is, if we, we hark back to the 1970s, there was a completely different relationship there with labour and how well it was organised to unions. And it went too far. It was overbearing. And one of the biggest problems in history was the Labour Party, when it was in government in the 60s, was not able to sort out an appropriate relationship. And the failure of, for the, the people who are interested in this history, of Barbara Castle, who was the amazing um, minister who tried to sort this out back in the day. But now we're in a sort of a situation where it's gone too far in the other direction. And... People, like teachers, for example, right, they've had as much as a 10% real terms loss in their pay over the last 12 years. We need to have some position where people in the economy can exercise some kind of power, a sort of backstop where they can exercise their power. Unfortunately, strikes are those things. And I strongly agree here with the Conservative MP Alec Shelbrook, who said today, if people are going to lose their ability to have an effect when they withdraw their labour, this is what effectively bringing agency workers would do, then I'm afraid... They've effectively lost the ability to withdraw their labour. What does that mean? It means that people who primarily earn their wages from, from money from wages will not be able to exercise increasing power in the economy, which means those wages will further stagnate, which is what's already happening, will get worse. It means the, the working conditions they're under, which are getting worse with casualisation and so on, will then get worse. It Does any be, of this apply it, to the... Can we just it, focus on the railways? Does any of this apply to the railways? The answer is it doesn't. It right, hang on. No, it doesn't. On the con- it really, do, it really, sorry, it really does not apply. David, and, no, but, sorry, but sorry, it really is it's me, important David. we stick to the point. And it's very important it that you listen though. to me because it's my show. Johnny has emailed in. Michelle, I'm a signaller at Network Rail and I will be on strike again in two weeks, which incidentally inconveniences me too on that day with regards to getting home from work, he says. In my role, I I must be certain that any action I take on the railway is 100% safe. To do this, I was trained for six months in railway regulations. If I make a mistake and someone is harmed or dies, I go to prison. For the amount of responsibility I have and the risks that I manage every day, I only receive £29,000. This company now proposes to wreck my terms and conditions and also expects me to accept a real terms pick-up. We're on strike because the cuts will be bad for passengers as well as staff. It will compromise safety. 
On the point of agency staff, that point he says had in his making, the government is gambling with untrained and inexperienced staff to do a role that could have devastating consequences. What would you say back to Johnny? Exactly. I would say that if you're dealing with something like a signaller, he's got a serious point. That is a job that does require serious training. Uh, on the other hand, it should almost certainly be a job that doesn't survive. The case for automation is overwhelming. The case for eliminating almost all train drivers is overwhelming. These should be automatic. You know, the, one of our problems in London, with London Transport at the moment is things like the Victoria Line were actually designed to run automatically and restrictive practices have prevented this from happening. There's a very, very strong element here of what's Ludditism. A refusal, a refusal, and again, you know, there's a, there's a wonderful remark back in back in the 1920s that the man who was doing the mediation between the miners and the coal workers uh, and the miners and the and and the coal coal owners said he'd never met anybody more stupid than the miners until he met the people who owned the pits. And there's a problem that's been profound underinvestment in many areas of rail. Um, that that we've there's been erratic investment. That there's been a failure to properly avail oneself of new technology, whilst at the same time embarking on vastly extravagant white elephants like HS2. Once again, there's been a fundamental failure of national management. Well, there you go. So, Johnny, did you hear his response to you? He just basically said, uh, amongst other things, your job should be done by technology. What do you say to that? Um, Laurie, one of the questions I've got for you, in you know, we talk about power imbalances and all the rest of it. You know, when it comes to uh, wages, et cetera, that's only one part of it. The other side of it, as we've just been alluding to then, is about redundancies. A lot of people are saying, a lot of unions are saying to the employers, we want you to guarantee no compulsory redundancies. Mm -hmm. But I find that a ludicrous demand. It's an understandable demand because, of course, as an employee, you want to know you're not going to lose your job. But any business needs to be able to transform and be agile and fit itself to market conditions and future strategies, future technologies, whatever it is. So for an organisation to say, right, we will give you our word, we won't make compulsory redundancies, you're tying your hands behind your back when it comes to competitive advantage, profitability potentially, future strategy and being agile. It's an unrealistic demand. Do you agree? Um, I, I don't know the specifics of the, of the demand that they're making here. And I you think don't it need is to, a, you don't need to any, no what, for the general, the, the general, general idea of, of, of there being no compulsory redundancies. If I was in a union, I would be trying to argue for that, I think, because this is about a, a power tussle in society. And as a union member, you're going to try and do that. Right. And I'm. I'm not going to be drawn on whether I, I would rule that out in general. Sorry, Labour, you're not going to be drawn. Because this on. is because this. In, all the, you, you know what you'd have done with, just, with, with the line just, you're taking. You'd have prevented the industrial revolution. No, no, I would not. You would have absolutely prevented the industrial revolution. I would not have prevented the industrial revolution. There were no such thing. Be super duper brief because it's a bigger not, point here, which is that it's a bigger point here, which is that. The, in every single country where there are high levels of, of, of union membership and a, and a mature relationship between the unions and the state, which we didn't have in 1970, we also don't have now, it's gone too far in the other direction, growth is better, people's working conditions better, wages are better, and the country is doing much better, right? And in the which of these blissful? Which of no, these blissful countries? I'm not saying they're utopias. I'm not saying they're well, utopias. Well, no, which in are, Germany, would, would you agree? Have you looked at the state of the? Have you looked at the state of the German economy recently? It is better than Britain. You can do that. It's better than Britain. It's not. The German economy is about to go bust. Right. If you want to talk about German economies, you two, do it in the break.
Hello there, welcome back to Tubes & Co. With me, Michelle Jubri. Keeping me company tonight, we've got David Starkey, the historian and broadcaster, and the environmental policy researcher, Laurie Leibon. Adrian has been in touch saying, Michelle, you are being very bossy tonight. Stop it. No, I won't stop it, Adrian. Trust me, I've got a show to keep on the road, everyone, and we've got to finish by a certain time, or else there'll be no Patrick, no Farage, no Mark Stein, and then what? As, love, as much as I'd love to sit here chatting all night, unfortunately, I do only have an hour and I have a lot to get through. So that's why I have to keep things moving on because we've talked about uh, Tory leadership. We've talked about some policies. We've talked about striking uh, in a minute. We'll be talking about foreign aid, but up next, Patrick is holding the fort for Farage. What have you got for us, Patrick? Yes, I am Fort Farage, indeed. I don't think you're bossy enough, Michelle, actually, but there we go. Uh, so we've got loads coming up for you. I'm asking whether or not this country treats its veterans correctly. There was a report that came out in the BBC, a documentary that has been blasted by our veterans community as being one-sided and, in fact, taking the side of our enemy, it could be said as well. I'm asking whether or not we treat veterans well enough in this country. We're also going, actually, fingers crossed anyway, live to this meeting about the Asylum Seeker Hotel. We did a big exclusive on that yesterday, a hotel in Essex. We're looking to follow it up. We're not going to let this one rest. Hey, and guess what? We even got a mind reader to finish the show. There we go. Mind reader. Oh, ask him to get in uh, the mind of whoever it is that's pulling the balls out of the lottery and get us uh, heads up <laughs> as to what the numbers will be, Patrick, and let me know, yes? I uh, will do, I uh, will see do. You, see you at seven o'clock. Right, let's talk foreign aid, shall we, everyone? Uh, where do you stand on this topic? Because I know just the concept generally of foreign aid is enough to divide people. Some will say we absolutely shouldn't be sending anything. Charity begins at home. Other people will say we absolutely are not sending enough. So where do you even stand on it as a principle in the first place? Um, the reason that I'm asking, moving the conversation on from just the are we in favour of it or not, is that UK agencies, aid agencies, have now been downgraded in a global transparency index because of things like lack of strategy and publication of results. The index, uh, which is well respected and is the only one of its kind, is considered an essential, uh, basically, tracker as to what money is going where and the impact it makes. Basically, long story short, uh, slipping in this index is not a good thing. We're still in the good category, to be fair, Laurie. We're mm. 16. Uh, we're in the good. We're not in the very good category. And it's a, a concern for people who think that actually it's great to send money, but is it effective mm. what we're sending, yes or no? So where do you stand on it all? I think it's good to remember why we have uh, foreign aids. A lot of people make this argument based upon morals of, you know, it's important that we give money to places that are not as wealthy as us and experiencing major problems and so on. And that is one argument. And of course, I sympathise with that. For me, actually, the practical argument is uh, even more effective, which is that in a globally connected world, certain problems will emerge far afield. And because we are connected to certain places through our supply chains, energy markets, like we're suffering from the disruption of at the moment, it means that if we can deal with those problems at source, or, or try to, or contribute towards dealing with those problems with source, it's far better than having to deal with a mess when it blows back against us, right? It's better to deal with a, a leak in a gas so pipe than to rebuild rather your... than uh, cure. Yeah, and, and, and what that requires is foreign aid that is both um, well, you know, well-funded, that the, the UK is a very wealthy country compared to other countries in the world, is able to contribute a certain amount. And it means that that funding is also has to be transparent so that we can ensure partly as voters, but also other organisations, can hold the government into account into ensuring that it is spending that money effectively on the right kind of project. So this doesn't come as a surprise to me, this news, because we have known for a long time that the government is 
trying to distract from the fact that it's failing to build a better economy and society abroad by pointing the finger at foreign aid and, and trying to create this situation where we have to think that there's so little money going around that we can't give any money to trying to deal with some of those problems abroad when actually we know that we could afford to do both. Um, so uh, this is a problem, a constant problem, and it's about time that hopefully we get a new leader who will be able to deal with that. David, your thoughts? Oh dear, what a cascade of nice, thoughtless remarks. The problem with foreign aid is that it's based on two fundamental misconceptions. The first is that there is a thing called underdevelopment. What underdevelopment means is we have the quaint notion that all the world should be like us. Now, it may be that countries don't want to be like us, that they don't want to become highly industrialised, highly urbanised. So, you know, what we're really doing, in a sense, is saying they should be like us, as prosperous and as organised as us. That's the first misunderstanding. The second misunderstanding is that they could be as prosperous as we are. See, our prosperity isn't accidental. Our prosperity depends on fundamental historical facts. It depends on the weakness of our extended families and the intense degree of individualism. If you have tribal societies where the group dominates rather than the individual, as in Pakistan, as in Afghanistan, as in much of the Middle East, you cannot have a modern developed economy. It doesn't matter how much aid, it doesn't matter whether you send in troops, it makes absolutely not a blind bit of difference. And the other more fundamental thing is that very often, how we, and I know it's well meant, and I know pictures of starving children are desperately disturbing, but putting modern medicine into an underdeveloped economy is insane because what you do is you guarantee that you produce children who can't eventually be fed. You get this vast burdening, burgeoning of the population of Africa and of the Middle East. It is catastrophic. I know, again, it sounds absolutely brutal. You can only have modern medicine with a modern economy. Otherwise, population and resources get out of kilt. Again, you see, Michelle, so this is where history really is important. Until the 18th century, the whole world was kept in balance because when population grew too far, the resources sustaining it broke down and people starved and the population rebalanced. This is called Malthusianism. This is broken for the first time in this country with the new sort of economy that we developed here, which enables us to conquer the world. This extraordinary new... So, so, so the, you need to let Laurie come back, yeah, because we're but, almost out of time, but, and you said he's basically speaking thoughtless drivel. Laurie. Yeah, yeah, thanks, David. And the, so on your two points there, the, the, the first one, I, I, I agree with you that, that British foreign aid should not be spent trying to replicate British-type societies abroad. For example, a lot of countries are burdened by massive amounts of air pollution from coal power plants. And I would like it if British foreign aid actually made sure it wasn't investing out in a different type of energy system for those places and, in, and as an enabling partner, not it being imposed on them. But on this point about how countries developed in different ways because of, of, of family structures and tribal elements and stuff, you mentioned Pakistan, Afghanistan. I think their different development trajectories are probably have got far more to do with the last thing that you were saying, which is that Britain then went and brutally conquered parts of the world and extracted huge amounts no, this of wealth is not from true. those countries. This simply is that not set true. them on a different they're, development trajectory. We true. know this. We, we nonsense. We know this from from you know. I know that you are you know uh, uh, 
someone who is incredibly learned on history, a key part of the history of development trajectories in, in the world was the colonial era and the damage that, that imperial countries imposed on colonies that they extracted from, that they took people to be put into slavery, that they killed local people, that they allowed to suffer under a famine in other countries. This of makes problems. almost no difference. Right, there you go. He says it makes no difference. Uh, where do you stand? Unfortunately, that is all I've got time for. I've got to say, the overwhelming sense coming through on my email tonight is from people saying charity begins at home. It is time, whatever the motives, to stop foreign aid. Oh, you harsh bunch. Uh, anyway, have yourselves a good evening. I will see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>